for Job. It's been a couple of Sundays since we were in Job. Uh, two Sundays ago, as a matter of fact, we looked at the fourth part of Elihu's speech in chapter 35, where Elihu sought to correct Job's really terrible bad thinking concerning God's uncaring attitude toward him. You know, Job had just kind of over time slid into this bad thinking and you know, because of his circumstances, his situation not ending and the attack of his friends, you know, he just kind of, I don't know, he just kind of thought that, well, maybe God doesn't care about me and that's, that's, that's what's going on there. And so, and Elihu in chapter 35 really sought to, to correct that. And of course, Job never says that, it's just implied in his behavior, in his speeches. And I think that the temptation for us in difficult seasons is to kind of feel and think the same way. Maybe God just doesn't care, and that's why I'm experiencing all this uh, calamity. And so it's a common mistake to make, but Elihu sought to correct it, and I think he did a, a really good job of just laying out an argument for God's constant perpetual care. And really the issue that he dealt with in 35 was the idea of unanswered prayer. Job had kept praying and praying and praying for relief and all these things, and he felt like his prayers were going unanswered, so he related that to uncaringness coming from God. And, and Elihu just really attacked that, that argument and, and laid out potential reasons for why God may not answer prayers. And it would be not because God is uncaring toward his child or toward anyone who's praying to him, but that God sees something in the person who's praying that shouldn't be there, like selfishness. I know that resonates with me because a lot of my prayers are very selfish. They're just really about me or about what I want or about what I want for others in my sphere of influence or in my family. So if God detects selfishness there, there's a chance that he might not answer prayer. If there's self-entitlement, the idea that, you know, God, you owe me, that was what was going on with Job. God may not answer prayer. And then lastly, just straight up unbelief, a lack of faith, you know, praying to God, but not actually believing that he has the power um, and might to actually accomplish the things that you're praying for, a lack of faith. And of course, this was all exposited or, or revealed through Elihu in 35, 9 to 14. Now, another bad thought coming through Job had to do with God being inactive. God sort of sitting on his sovereign hands and, and not rising up and, and uh, in the midst of Job's calamity, not rising up and bringing justice and and, and listening to Job and doing what Job is asking for. And there's just, within his speeches, you, you kind of sense that he's charging God with inactivity, with not doing what he thinks God ought to be doing. When Job accuses God of leaving him in a terrible state of suffering, not answering his prayers, not upholding his rights, not destroying the wicked, because Job was like, you've got all these wicked people doing all these terrible things around here. You're not doing anything against them, but I'm a righteous man and you're hammering me. When Job says all of these things about God, is he not, in a sense, charging God with being inactive? Of course he is. And, and I, I would just simply say to us, 
do we not do the exact same thing at times? When our lives are in turmoil and we're praying but nothing changes, we say things like, God, why aren't you doing something about this? Huh? You ever asked yourself that question? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why aren't you fixing my family? I've got all this, these uh, family issues and, and problems and there's strife and division and rebellion and, and discord and you know my family is just coming apart at the seams. I've been praying and praying and praying and it looks like my family might dissolve. What are, what, what's going on? It's time to get off your sovereign hands. Why are you not saving my coworkers? I've been praying for Fred for nine years. If you don't save Fred, I'm going to kill him. Right? Why aren't you healing my relative that I've been praying for? I've got a sick relative. Lord, you know this. I've brought it before your throne of grace. I can't even count how many times. And, and he or she just keeps getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Doesn't look like they're going to make it. What are you doing? Or maybe one for somebody like me is I've been praying for our church to grow firstly spiritually and then numerically. One of my challenges to God at times has been, why aren't you growing our church numerically? It's easy for you to do. It's just not happening. We, we do this. We do what Job's doing. When we open our news app and scroll through the carnage, we say things like, God, why don't you intervene and fix the situation in the Ukraine? Do you not see what the bloodthirsty Russians are doing to these Ukrainian people? Or they're saying they're trying to stomp out the Nazis. I didn't realize the Ukrainians were Nazis. Why don't you intervene? Why don't you end mass shootings? Why don't you end this perverted ideology that is now entering into our schools when we have to teach the littlest lambs about gender? God, why don't you end the assault on women's sports? Men do not belong in women's sports. I don't care if they think they're women. They have different bone structure. They have sports that they're supposed to play. God, why don't you bring that to an end? God, why don't you end Twitter as we know it through Elon Musk? Amen? Somebody in here is like, I like Twitter the way it is. Why don't you? Never mind, Lord. When we say things like this to ourselves or to others, are we not doing exactly what Job did and charging God with being inactive? We do this. Are we not charging the Almighty with sitting on His sovereign hands? Now in the next section, Elihu seeks to correct this bad thinking. Firstly in Job, that's his immediate audience, and then in everyone who studies this passage, us. He's going to seek to correct 
this kind of thinking, he will make clear to Job that God is the furthest thing in the world from being inactive, that he's actually very, very active in his creation, especially regarding his people. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job 36. This message is going to have two parts since there's an enormous amount of material to cover in this chapter. I'll give you, because we're on part 5, 5.1, so we'll have 5.1 verses 1 to 16 and 5.2 verses 17 to 33. Lord willing, God could change that up this coming week. I had four Ps for you, but I'll give you two this week and two next week, Lord willing, again. Let's pray so we can get to work. Lord, we thank you for this morning, yet another opportunity to come together to worship you as a body, as a church, corporately. What a blessing this is, Lord. I pray that we do not take it for granted. Because we're doing it now doesn't mean we'll be able to do it in the coming weeks with the way things are happening in the world. You never know. But Lord, we thank you for this gift. We pray that uh, you would capture our attention right now, Lord, with your word. This is a, a subject that we need to pay attention to. Help us to pay attention to your word. Help us to be, through the power of the Spirit, transformed by your word, sanctified by your word. Even some in this room probably saved by your word. We want to give you all the praise and glory for all that you do now in this time. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. First P, Elihu's proposal. We see this in verses 1 to 4. We'll just tackle one to four right off the bat. We don't have to divide that section up. Here's what Elihu says next. And Elihu continued and said, remember he's talking to Job, correcting Job. He said, bear with me a little and I will show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Stop there. Elihu begins this portion of this amazing, it's just an incredible speech. He begins it with a clear proposal. He believes that God has given him wisdom to share with Job. And he proposes that if Job will bear with him a little, he will what? Continue to speak as he's been speaking why? Because he has something to say on God's behalf. This is the truest case of God has a word for you through me. You hear that today all the time? And it never sounds like this, which means it's bunk. But right here with Elihu, it's the real genuine article. Job, if you'll just listen a little longer, I have something to say to you for God. That's the proposal. He also tells Job here, that he will not speak from an earthly perspective. In other words, he will not use man's wisdom. Man's wisdom isn't worth a hill of beans. He says the knowledge he is receiving, it comes from afar. In other words, it's not from here. It's not from this planet. It's not from the earth. It's not from the world. It's not from these guys standing here. It's not from you, Job. It's not from any man. It is from afar, meaning heaven. Therefore, because it's coming down from God, the, the wisdom and knowledge that he's receiving that he will, he will impart to Job, it will ascribe righteousness to his maker, to God, because it comes from God. 
And this is one of the ways that you can know if somebody's actually sharing God's word with you. Does it, does it ascribe righteousness to the God of the word? Because if it doesn't, then it's bunk. It's from here. Because Elihu's wisdom and knowledge are coming from God in heaven, his words will not be, what does he say? False. They're not going to be false. You see, if I, if I get my wisdom from man or from this world, that, that, that there's great potential there that what I say to you will be false and worldly. He's saying, I'm getting it from afar. I'm getting it from God. It won't be false. Why is that? Because God never speaks falsely. Only truth comes from God. His words will not be false. On the contrary, he will speak with perfection or perfect knowledge. Why? Because his words will be God's words, not his own. The only time a person ever speaks perfectly is when they read God's word aloud or quote God's word verbatim. That's the only time anyone ever speaks with perfection is when they read this aloud or quote it verbatim, word for word. That's the only time. And that's what he's essentially saying. Every word spoken outside of Scripture is either commentary, common speech, or nonsense. Right? Anything spoken outside of this, it's just, it's either commentary on this, and by the way, just about every sermon is commentary on this, or it's just regular, everyday speech. I'm going to go get some eggs and some bacon and I'm going to have breakfast tomorrow morning. Common speech. Or it's just gibberish nonsense. We talk about things that have zero value. Scripture, it always ascribes righteousness to its maker. So when we speak Scripture, we speak with perfection and we ascribe righteousness to the maker, to the author of Scripture, God Himself. What Christians need to lead, uh, learn to do is just to speak more of God's Word rather than their own words. And we get an example from the Puritans who really, really saturated themselves in the Word of God. And sometimes you're reading a Puritan and you, you think it's the Word of God and then you do some research and find out, oh, he's just paraphrasing a verse. Now, Job is under the impression that God is inactive, right? God is just sitting there on his heavenly throne doing nothing while Job's life spins seemingly out of control. Elihu is saying to Job right off the bat, Job, the opposite is true. God is not inactive. He is actively giving me perfect wisdom and knowledge to share with you. If you bear with me a little longer, I will show you. You're really, in the, in the beginning of the proposal here, you're looking at the first example of how God is not inactive, but active. He's actively giving wisdom to Elihu to, to what? Share in part to Job. That's God's activity. Now we have to ask this question. What was Job's deepest, real deepest and truest need at this juncture, or really along the way, but at this point in the narrative, in his life, what, what is his deepest need? Did he need deliverance? Some of us would say, yes, that was his deepest need. Well, yes, he did need deliverance, didn't he? Of course he did. 
But he needed something prior to his deliverance because his deliverance wouldn't come until God's perfect timing. So he needed something before deliverance came because deliverance was not going to be rushed. It would only come in God's timing. There's a span between the, the moment of impact and calamity and when it ends, at the ending of it, you have deliverance, but you have all that time and space in between. And there's something that he needs so desperately in the middle. Wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom to think rightly, wisdom to act rightly, wisdom to speak rightly, wisdom that would help him acclaim the goodness of God instead of accuse God of inactivity and all these other things. Wisdom that would help Job navigate, uh, navigate, pardon me, navigate suffering in a way that ascribes righteousness to his maker. Like along the way as he's suffering all this calamity and adversity and everything, he's, he's glorifying God and and claiming righteousness and holiness to God during this time rather than constantly challenging God. Job needed wisdom. And I don't think he was aware of that at this point. Not at this moment. Why? Because he was embittered. It's hard to discern what your true needs are when you're embittered. It's hard to figure anything out when your heart has grown so cold and you're just, just so negative when you're embittered. You, you just don't, you don't know. People tell you what you need, and you're like, I, I don't even need you right now. That's, that's what I'll tell you. I don't need you. Well, then I'm out of here. See ya. Less trouble for me. He needed wisdom. I don't think he knew that, but God knew that, didn't he? God knew what he needed. What does the active God do? He imparts divine wisdom to Elihu so that Elihu can pass it to Job. As I said earlier, it's easy for us to be like Job and to wrongly assume that God is inactive when things appear to be at some kind of a standstill. You may feel that way right now. You've got an issue in your life, in your family that needs to change, but it isn't changing. What we need during these difficult times is wisdom from above so that we can respond to that scenario, that situation properly or rightly or in a way that describes righteousness to our maker. Elihu is essentially speaking on God's behalf. He is saying God is not inactive, Job. He imparts divine wisdom to his people when they need it. We need to realize that our true need in difficult situations might not be what we think it is. Just, just, just listen to my theory and my logic. If a believer is short on funds, he or she will think that they need more money. Amen? What they actually need is wisdom to better steward and maximize what they have. Did you hear me? You're asking for money, and what you need is wisdom to figure out how to make what you have work to the glory of God. You're asking for the wrong thing. That's essentially what Job is doing. The simple fact of the matter is, is that more provision may not come. Amen? But you keep asking for it. 
But you know what wisdom does? It makes all things work. It makes everything work. It makes less money work. It does. Wisdom is the skill set that makes things work. And this is why, at least one of the reasons why, wisdom is more precious than what? Gold and precious stones. Money! Job 28, 16, Proverbs 3, 13 to 15, Proverbs 8, 11, all speak to the value of wisdom which supersedes and transcends and goes far beyond any tangible asset, any cash, any gold, any stocks, any Dogecoin, which is not worth much. God is not sitting on his sovereign hands. He is active. He will give us what we truly need in any situation, and nine times out of ten, it is wisdom. Ask Him for wisdom. Stop asking Him for more money. Stop asking Him for more friends, whatever it is that you're seeking after. Ask Him for, for the very thing that will help you make whatever it is that you have before you work for the, His glory and for your good. What does James 1.5 say? If any of you lacks money, oh, no, no, hold on a second, it doesn't say that. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And guess what? He'll give it to you. What's the fault that you might have? Lack of faith. You need wisdom and you believe God will give it to you and you pray for it, you'll get it. And you'll figure out how to make ends meet. You figure out how to get those bills paid. Whatever it is, wisdom is a gift that God, the active God, gives in these situations. And I'm telling you right now, it is what Job needed the most. Why? Because we are now seeing how he is not acting and speaking wisely. He's not even thinking wisely anymore now. So that's the proposal. I have wisdom to give to you from God. Bear with me a little longer. Will you continue to listen? Second P or point, Elihu's presentation. This is in the rest of our section for today, verses 5 to 16. This is really the meat of this chapter. We'll start at verse 5 because we, 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 there's no way. We've just got to break it up. We've got to parse it out. Here's what Elihu says next. Behold, and this is probably, honestly, my favorite statement in this part of his speech, at least in these 16 verses. This is insane. I need to learn to start my sermons and speeches with this kind of talk. Verse 5, behold. What, what is behold? Pay attention. Listen carefully. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Stop there. What a verse. What he's really doing is setting the stage for his presentation. He begins just by simply presenting a few facts about God. Right out of the gate, he says, and this is like a double-barrel shotgun blast, God is mighty. This is a mic drop moment right here. God is mighty, mic drop, I'm off stage. What more needs to be said? God is mighty, mic drop out. 
What more needs to be said to a suffering servant of God? By the way, God is mighty. You know what? I seem to have forgotten that. I think I'll be okay. End the book. This is a mic drop moment. Now, the mightiness of God is, is not, it, it's not just a, a, a powerful truth. We know it is, but it's not just a powerful truth. It is a reality that should quell every believer's fears and concerns in a second, in a nanosecond. Our troubles might seem big, but God is mighty. God is mighty. My, my, my troubles are great, but God is greater. God is mighty. He's mighty, all-powerful. Isn't that something we forget when stuff's jacked up? It's one of the first things we forget. Why, why do you think Elihu is telling Job this? By the way, God is mighty. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. My bad. You can pick the mic up, Elihu. This is a mic drop moment. God is mighty. It's not just a, a powerful doctrinal truth in Scripture. It's a reality that should quell all our fears and concerns. Our troubles are big sometimes, but he is mighty. Just let that sink in. Consider just a handful of examples of God's might from Scripture. God spoke all things into existence and formed man from the dust of the earth, Genesis 1 and 2. What is creation? An example of God's might. I don't know about you, but I could stare at an empty void and try to speak something into existence, and after 10 million attempts, it's still an empty void. But God spoke all creation, spoke with His Word, the might of His Word, all things into existence. And then He takes man who didn't exist, didn't speak man into existence, He spoke the dust takes the dust, fashions, and forms a man. That's might. God unleashed a global catastrophic flood, destroyed wicked humanity except eight people on a big, funky, square, rectangular boat. Genesis 7, that is the might of God unleashing a flood like that. God destroyed the Tower of Babel, added new languages, scattered the inhabitants of the earth. Genesis 11, 1 to 9, God's might. Oh, you want to build a tower up because you want to foist yourselves up and act like God? Bye. Scattered languages. No comprende. A minute ago we were talking. And they're all scattered. And this is how he gets people to go out throughout the world because they're all kind of localized in this Middle Eastern area. And now they're moving out all over the place. That's an example of his might. God devastated the Egyptians along with their false religion and all their false gods with ten plagues. Frogs, gnats, bloody rivers, bloody waterways. Exodus chapter 7 through 12, it's a big section. What is that? God's might. 
God splits the Red Sea so that his people can pass through. And right at the perfect moment, he releases that power and then it closes in on Pharaoh and his army. They're all destroyed and killed. Exodus 14, God's might. God's might. God preserves the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they were in a fiery furnace. Daniel 3, 8 to 30. That is a wonderful story. They heated the furnace extra hot that day, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar did because he wanted to incinerate these guys to the point that they didn't exist so he could refute their God. They came out, didn't have a burn on them. God's might... God preserved the life of Daniel while he was thrown into a lion's den with a bunch of starving lions. Daniel 6, God's might. Jesus cast a a legion. He he exercised a legion of demons, cast them out of a man, a whole legion. They went off down into the swine and ran into into the ocean or into the sea and drowned. Mark 5, 1 to 13. Luke 8, 26 to 33. God's might. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Literally, the young daughter dies. She is physically dead, and he raises her back to life. Mark 5, 35 to 43, God's might. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John eleven thirty eight 38 to 44, God's might. God raised Jesus from the dead. Matthew 28, 1 to 10, Mark 16, 1 to 8. We just talked about this last weekend. Luke 24, 1 to 12, Romans 8, 11. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the resurrection. That is God's might. God raises His people whom He chose in eternity past. He raises His people in time and space from spiritual death to spiritual life, Ephesians 2.5, Colossians 2.13, God's might. These are just a few examples of God's might from the Bible. Are we foolish enough to think that this mighty God cannot handle our difficult situations? That He cannot help us power through the obstacles we are facing? That He cannot help us ascend or scale every insurmountable mountain in life? Persecution? God is mighty. Cancer? Right? God is mighty. Unemployment? God is mighty. Damaged relationships? God is mighty. The salvation of our unbelieving friends and relatives, God is mighty. Our battle with sin, God is mighty. Crossing the finish line, finishing the race of faith, which seems so difficult at times, God is mighty. Our misfortunes are no match for God's might. Amen? And that is Elihu's point here. That's why he can just simply say, God is mighty, drop the mic and walk away. Job knows what that means. We should too. 
Elihu says that God is not only mighty, but he what? Does not despise any. This is an important reality or truth here. In other words, God does not abuse his might or power. He uses it for the highest good of his people. Thus, he is both all-powerful and all-loving, working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, one of my favorite verses. Job was twisted in his thinking. He literally said that he believed God hated him. That all of his calamity and not answering the prayers and all of the negativity, all the bad things that were happening to him, those were examples of God's hatred for him. He vocalized this. He said this in a speech. Chapter 16, verse 9. He has hated me. Elihu is saying God does not hate you. He is mighty in the strength of his understanding. In other words, God knows exactly what he's doing with Job, and it has nothing to do with hatred. If calamity comes, it's not because God hates us. Let me repeat myself. If calamity comes your way, it's not because God hates you. Doesn't have anything to do with hatred. God cannot, listen to me, believer, God cannot hate his children. Christ paid for these children. To hate us would be to hate the one who redeemed us. God will never hate his son. He loves Jesus, Matthew 3.17. This is my son in whom I am pleased, in whom I love, Matthew 3.17, John 10.17, and as well in John 15.9, he loves his son. He loves Jesus. He loves the members of the Godhead. God is immutable, unchanging. He cannot love and then hate the same individual. He cannot like and then learn to love. God doesn't fall in love. He either loves or he despises. There's no in-between. Elihu is telling us, telling Job that God will never hate, never despise His people. In fact, He loves us with an everlasting, never-ending love. Jeremiah 31, 3. How could the Father hate those He gave to the Son? How? If He gave you to Jesus as a gift, which He chose to do in eternity past, how could He possibly change His mind about you and hate you later? We are the Father's gift to the Son. John 6, 37 through 39. John 17, 6 and 17, 24. In love, L-O-V-E, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters in Christ. Ephesians 4, 1, 4 and 5. In love, 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 only love. Always love. 
Say it. Love. Love. Love is the Father's heart and eternal disposition toward His children. Job was wrong. God loved him. Job's calamity was for his own good. God disciplines the one he loves. Proverbs 3.12, Hebrews 12.6 picks up on that. Job's calamity was not just for his own good, it was for the good of God's glorious name because God was working through Job's calamity and faith to set the record straight with the adversary, the Satan or Satan. Job's enduring faith shows that God's true people love the giver over the gifts. That is the main point of the book of Job. Job is a test to show everyone that God's true people, if God removes everything, they still keep the faith, they still love God. Why? Because they're mighty? No, because He's mighty. You're not the author and perfecter of your faith. Christ is. You keep believing because of His might, not because of yours. Because if it was left to you, you would give it up. You'd have it on Monday and give it up by Monday night or Tuesday morning. Verse 6, speaking of God, Elihu says, He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the wicked their right, or gives the afflicted, pardon me, gives the afflicted their right. Elihu is basically unleashing another salvo against Job's accusation. This time he presents God's active, ongoing justice. He gives two examples, one positive, one negative. Job had stated that God is inactive toward the wicked. Reread his speech in chapter 21. The title of it is, The Wicked Do Prosper. <laughs> in response to the friend's claims that, that God always brings swift destruction upon the wicked, Job asks in chapter 21, verse 7, Why do the wicked live then? Why do they reach old age? Why do they grow mighty in power? If a wicked person bears his wicked teeth, God destroys him instantly. That's what you're saying, friends? Well, then why do they live long lives? Why do they prosper? Why are they doing better than me, a righteous man? Elihu is now responding to this question that Job's asked, asked back in 21. Why do they live? Why do they prosper? If they're destroyed instantly, why do they keep going and going and going? In verse 6a, he presents the negative example. He is saying, God is not inactive toward the wicked. He's not what you're suggesting, Job. He does not keep the wicked alive. In other words, God is actively exercising justice against the wicked. Now sometimes, we know this, sometimes God's justice is instant death. We, we see examples of that in Scripture. And I think we see examples of it around us. We just say that's natural causes or whatever. Sometimes God's justice is instant death. And sometimes it comes in other forms. Like when he gives idolaters over to a depraved mind, Romans 1.28. That's his justice and judgment on America, by the way. Everyone's lost their mind. Romans 1 talks about that. 
You want to live out your sexual sin and worship the creation over the creator? He'll let you go totally mental. So much so, you'll start to try to teach the youngest lambs in school there's no such thing as gender. That's an example of his justice against this nation. So when you're praying for it to end, God is saying, no, it needs to be. Sometimes God's justice comes swiftly, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar suggested. And sometimes it comes later in life or at the moment of death. Hebrews 9, 27, man is appointed to death once and to judgment. Elihu's point is that divine justice always comes because God is actively administering it. Verse 6b, Elihu presents the positive example of justice. God not only brings negative justice upon the wicked like certain death and these other things, but he also brings positive justice on the afflicted. He restores or gives them their right. In other words, God is actively exercising justice on behalf of his people. He is undoing the injustices committed against them. Think of Joseph. I don't think there's a better example. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a better example in Jesus that he had all this injustice committed against him and then he's raised in glory and seated at the right hand of God. That's by far the greatest example of rewriting an injustice. But Joseph is second to him. He was unjustly thrown into a pit. Oh, you think you got your special coat? Poof. Genesis 37, 24. He was unjustly sold into slavery with the Ishmaelites. Genesis 37, 28, he was unjustly accused of sexual misconduct by Potiphar's promiscuous wife. Genesis 39, 11 to 18, she would have been the first Me Too person, except she had no reality because he was a godly man and hadn't done anything wrong. Joseph was unjustly thrown into prison for 11 to 12 years because of that. Genesis 39, verse 20, this Godly man suffered one terrible injustice after another. Pit, slavery, imprisonment. But God gives the afflicted their right. He brought positive justice into Joseph's life. God raised this afflicted saint from the mire and made him mighty in Egypt. Genesis 41, 40 to 41. Joseph's Power enabled him to rescue his entire family, including, including all the tribal heads of Israel, right? All 11, including him. He was already there, but all 11, 12 altogether, what? He rescued all of them because of his power and might, because God rewrote that injustice and turned it into justice. Because of that, he was able to deliver his entire family from a devastating flood, or not flood, but devastating uh, famine. Genesis 45, 6 to 7, Genesis 46, 8 to 27. So this man has all these injustice committed against him. God changes that and rewrites all of those injustices, brings justice into the life of Joseph, and he goes from being in a dark, damp, scary pit before being sold into slavery to sitting on a throne in Egypt and ruling second in command to Pharaoh to the point of being able to save grain because God gave him the ability to decipher dreams. He saves grain, saves his family, all the tribes of Israel. 
including a man named Judah. Who came from Judah? Jesus. He is the lion of Judah. If Joseph doesn't, this is hypothetical, but if he doesn't go through all of this injustice and then experience justice and bring the family out, we don't get Jesus. And we don't get a savior. We don't get Judah. He perishes because of the famine. You can see how God allows injustice, ordains injustice to bring about justice and accomplish his sovereign will and plan. Same thing is playing out in Job's life. It's just that we're not talking about Messiah coming later or tribes. God worked through many injustices to get Joseph to where he needed to be. God's active justice put Joseph in charge so that he could rescue his family and simultaneously, really probably without his knowledge, simultaneously preserve the line of Jesus, our Savior. Job was wrong. God is, is not inactive. He is actively administering both negative and positive justice. He does this in accordance with his plan to bring about his will. The whole world wants to escape injustice, and it's a necessary thing. Because of injustice, justice will come. Because God is just. Verses 7 to 9, Elihu says, He does not, God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. Maybe this is my favorite verse. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on, on, on uh, the thrones, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. Stop there. Elihu presents God's active attentiveness. You say he's inactive? No, 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 no. He's very, very active. He's very attentive. Verse 7a, he tells Job that God never withdraws his eyes from the righteous. In other words, God is always watching His people. Always. This is repeated in Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. God keeps a watchful eye over His people because He loves them. He is like a mother with her small child at a park. She lets little Ricky Bobby run and, 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 yeah, you know the reference. She lets little Ricky Bobby run and play, but she never takes her eyes off him, does she? Mm-mm. Even with her head slightly turned away, she can still see him peripherally. Oh, yes, Mabel, that was a great apple pie the other day. Stop doing that over there. She knows what he's doing. She's not using the force. She can see out of the corner of her eye because she never takes her eye off little Ricky Bobby. He became a race car driver later, by the way. Why does she watch him? Why does she keep her eyes on him all the time? Because she loves him and wants to keep him safe. And this is exactly what God does. Stephen Sharnock, he was probably my, one of my favorite Puritans. 
he did a, an exhaustive work on the attributes of God that will literally blow you away. He wrote, God regards the state of the righteous and all that befalls them. God works all with respect to their everlasting inheritance. Oh, man. Verse 7b, Elihu tells Job that God not only watches his righteous children, his righteous people, but sometimes he actively exalts them to prominence by enthroning them with kings. Now, this certainly was the case with Joseph, wasn't it? Huh? Now, you know why I gave the example of Joseph. I could use him in a previous example, and I could use him now. In verses 8 to 9, Elihu tells Job that God can actively humble his people if they become arrogant. He might let them become bound in chains or caught in the cords of affliction. But he will eventually provide a way out. He will, what, declare to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly, and he will warn them to repent. And if they truly belong to him, they will repent at some point. Maybe instantly, maybe weeks later, maybe after several warnings. Elihu's point is very simple. God is not inactive. He is always watching his people, the righteous. He actively exalts his people. He actively humiliates or humbles his people. Exaltation and humiliation are expressions of God's perfect, active love, love toward his people. And Job had experienced both, hadn't he? Because he was at the top and he was at the bottom. Verses 10 to 12, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. In verse 10, Elihu presents God's active pursuit of sinners. God sometimes opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return, which should be probably transliterated as repent of what? Their iniquity. In Elihu's day, God spoke through dreams and visions and pain and suffering, heavenly and earthly messengers. We learn this in Job 33, 15 to 24. And we also learned at that moment, and we know this, but today, God doesn't necessarily speak through those means. He certainly can do whatever He wants, but He has chosen to speak through Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Man, I can't wait to preach that. It is the message of Christ, the gospel that God speaks into the ears He opens. The gospel is the instruction. When God speaks the gospel into opened ears, He commands the hearers to repent of their iniquity and trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. In verses 11 and 12, Elihu presents what will happen if the hearer obeys or disobeys God's instruction, the gospel. If they listen and serve Him, and I think serve Him would be better rendered as submit. If they listen to God and submit to Christ, they will what? He says, complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. No, Elihu was not promoting the first early version of the prosperity gospel here. He is simply stating that submission, obedience to God, faith in Christ, submission to Christ, it will result in an abundant life. John 10, 10. A life of abundant identity, a life of abundant peace, 
a life of abundant joy, a life of abundant hope, a life of abundant security, a life of abundant purpose, a life that is abundantly rich, filled with priceless spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. This is what Elihu is promoting here. If the person obeys God's instruction, that's what they get. But if the hearer refuses to listen and, a diso and totally disobe disobeys, continues to disobey God's instruction, if he or she will not turn from their unbelief, turn from their iniquity, and believe and submit to Christ, he says here they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. This is, of course, judgment language. The sword is an instrument of war. It's an instrument of death. When God actively wields the sword of divine justice, guess what happens? The unrepentant perish. That's what happens. Verses 13 to 14, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. When God binds them, they die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. That's a very interesting phrase. In verse 13 here, Elihu tells Job that, that some people are godless in heart, previously mentioned as those who do not listen to God back in verse 12. What do they do? They cherish anger or they harbor resentment. In verse 14, Elihu says that they become so hardened that when God fetters them with affliction, they still do not cry for help. Why? Because of their stubborn hearts. They just refuse to repent. No matter what happens to them, how, no matter how bad it is, they just will not repent. No matter what. And consequently, they receive the just retribution of their disobedience. What do they do according to Elihu? They die in their youth, prematurely cut down in the prime of life among the cult prostitutes. Why does Elihu mention cult prostitutes here? Does it seem out of place? <laughs> it's actually a pretty good example. And that's why he put it in there. The Hebrew word for cult is kadashi. Kadashi. Strong's defines kadashi as a male prostitute who engages in sexual acts related to the worship of pagan gods. This is why this word kadashi is sometimes translated as sodomite. In Elihu's day, homosexuality was somewhat prevalent. It was there. It wasn't practiced nor celebrated everywhere like it is today in America. It was mostly, you would mostly find it. I don't know who would go looking for it, but if you did, you would only find it in these temples to false gods. In every other corner of ancient society, homosexuality was taboo. It wasn't something that you spoke about. It wasn't something that you bragged about. You didn't make a flag for it and walk up and down the street and demand that everyone affirm your lifestyle. That, that did not happen back then. You would have been put to death. But it did happen in some places. And people knew that in those temples. Unlike today, sodomy back then carried an extremely shameful stigma. Did you know that it used to be illegal in America? Not that long ago, even in the 70s. To die, now listen, here's the meaning. 
To die among these male cult prostitutes means to die in shame. That's the meaning. According to Elihu, this is the fate of the godless in heart who do not cry to God for help. Why? Because they hate him. They will die a premature, shameful death. That's the meaning. Verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. On a more positive note, right? Thank you, Elihu, because, wow, that got dark. On a more positive note, Elihu presents God's active work in the lives of the afflicted. He uses their affliction, their adversity to what? Open their ears and to speak to them, to call them to repentance. This is really nothing more than a reiteration of what Job said back in chapter 33, 19 to 20, or actually where Elihu said that, where he described how God speaks through pain and suffering. Remember that? This is just a reiteration of that. As I said then, pain can be a powerful preacher. It says something is wrong in your body. It causes or it can cause the sufferer to seek help and relief. If the pain is intense or long-lasting, some folks will even cry out to God. God, help me. God, deliver me from this. God, relieve my pain. I know I don't know you and I know I don't pray much, but boy, do I need you now. Now, if God chooses to respond to them, He will. The point is, is that pain is an attention getter, and so is death. The death of a cherished friend or loved one can cause folks to face their mortality, to ponder eternity, which God has set in their hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11. The point being, God is not inactive. He actively works through affliction to capture the attention of the afflicted and point them to Jesus. That's the point. Last verse, 16. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. This is a great verse. Elihu applied all of the truth that he just unpacked. He applies it directly to Job. He says, God is alluring you out of distress. The word Allured, I think, can carry a, seduct, a kind of a seductive connotation. Other translations, uh, they use the word, instead of allured, they use the word lured, like the HCSB, or induced, the NASB, enticed, which I think is very weird. Like, God is tempting you into this great place. That's the amplified version. The NIV uses wooing. I kind of like that. I think I like the ICB the most. That is the International Children's Bible. I think I like its rendering the most. God is gently calling you from the jaws of trouble. Isn't that awesome? The kids get it. Elihu offered this hope to Job, expressing his conviction that an end to his suffering was in sight. With tender compassion, God brings his people back to himself. There is an eventual relief to come from God. Elihu presents Job's future relief as what? A broad place where there is no cramping. 
And it's also where Job's table will be full of fatness. Listen to how the ICB, the International Children's Bible, puts the whole verse. God is calling you, this is what Elihu is saying to Job, God is calling you to an open place of freedom. There he has set your table full of the best food. Wow. What's the point? God is not inactive. He is preparing to deliver Job from his affliction and call him into this broad place that is free of cramping. There's no pain there. With a dining table full of fatness, the absolute best food. And yet, this will only occur in God's perfect timing. 